welcome to episode 40 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. We are in a moment of profound overlapping crises. The landscape of politics and entitlement is being rapidly remade, as movements against colonial legacies and state violence coincide with the rise of authoritarian regimes. It is perhaps the lens of racism and the politics of race that offers us the sharpest focus. Well, at any rate, that is the argument put forward by the collective of eight co-authors of the new book, Empire's Endgame, which is out now from Pluto Press. And it is 240 pages of really insightful analysis dealing with race, the state, the media and criminalisation in today's Britain. As we know, the hostile environment and the fallout from the Brexit referendum have, over the last few years, thrown the centrality of race into sharp relief. And yet discussions around racism have all too often continued to focus on individual behaviours or different national contexts altogether. Empire's Endgame foregrounds instead the wider political and economic context, and the authors trace the ways in which the legacies of empire have been reshaped by global capitalism, the digital environment and the instability of the nation-state. I'm Chris Brown, and it's my great pleasure to be joined on the show today by four of the eight authors of Empire's Endgame, Gargi Bhattacharya, Sita Balani, Nadine Elnanani, and Luke Denarona. We'll get going in just a moment, but first it's time for me to give a big shout out to our newest Patreon patrons. And they are Thomas Boyd, Poops, Hermit Singh, Leah Hancock, Tony Meehan, Kieran Kane, Herberg, Katie Holland, Theo Krang, Antonio Calcagno, Alice Parsons, Patrick, Camille Ray, Quinn Aleph and Lux Anderson. So a massive thank you to all of you for your continued solidarity and support. If you're listening and you're not yet a Pluto patron, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press and check out the various member benefits, which of course include the unabridged versions of all new Radicals and Conversation episodes. Okay, so without further ado, here are Gargi Bhattacharya, Sita Balani, Nadine Elanani and Luke Donorona. Well, firstly, let me say a big thank you to all of you for being here and for joining us on the show today. Also like to welcome back Nadine, who was part of a panel a couple of years ago talking about another excellent book after Grenfell. So I really want to start by just offering my congratulations to you and your co-authors, because this is a really wonderful eye-opening new book uh, that you've written. It's called Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State. So I just finished reading it last night in preparation for uh, this podcast today. Um, And I was really blown away by it. I mean, I'm probably contractually obliged to tell our listeners that it's a good book, but it is actually just, you know, essential reading. And I really encourage people to go to plutobooks.com and get a hold of a copy. Um, As ever, podcast listeners, you can get 50% off if you use the coupon podcast at the checkout. So I really do encourage people to, to get a copy and read it. So I guess one of the things that struck me as I was reading it was the clarity and the coherence of the writing, which... Okay, it feels kind of like faint praise, you know, that should be a baseline criteria for any book that it's readable. But when you consider that you're a team of eight co-authors, it's actually pretty impressive. So with that in mind, I'd love to just start by hearing a bit more about how the project came together and what was your co-writing process for this book? Um, Thank you, Chris, for your congratulations. And yeah, just to mention our 
other authors who aren't here today, Adam, Kerim, Kojo and Dahlia. Um, obviously, we would we would love to also be discussing this with them. But as you mentioned, eight authors are difficult to convene all in the same space. Um, however, we did manage that on several occasions in the actual writing of the book. And as you say, it's an unusual thing to have a book that's written by eight authors. Um, and usually a book like this would probably be divided into themes, chapters and each person would write one bit and then everybody else would read them and edit and we'd somehow put them together. But actually, um, we always wanted it to be the case that once we read the book at the end, we wouldn't know who had written which bit. And that is the sense we all have, I think, now when we read the book. We can't remember who wrote what. And so we always wanted for it to be a truly collective project. And so and so that's how we've written it. I mean, we're all from different disciplines. We all bring something different to the work we all have a an academic or uh sort of side of us but we also all have an organizing activist side of us and we've tried to kind of create a space that's outside of traditional academic research and the kind of marketized state of our institutions and our and our disciplines and also without the urgency of activism um to sort of come together and and try to write about racism so yeah we would basically meet usually in my office and you know on a sort of whiteboard flip chart one of us would take notes while the rest of us kind of threw about ideas usually one of us would come in with a particular theme that we wanted to think about that we thought might sort of map onto a chapter of the book and sometimes it would be inspired by latest scandal on anti-racist Twitter and we would kind of talk about that and then we would give ourselves kind of 45 minutes to an hour of exam conditions writing on that theme and then print off and read each other's bits over over lunch um, and we always found that they kind of fitted together quite well so yeah I mean that's basically how the writing process worked and we obviously had to take that process online for the latter part of the book when the pandemic happened but we sort of mapped on to the online sort of platforms that we use the, the same way that we'd worked in person yeah hmm. yeah so I guess then to dive into some of the arguments of the book in the last few years we can obviously point to the rise of the authoritarian right uh, in an alarming number of contexts internationally right so Trump in the US Bolsonaro Erdogan in Turkey and the UK can definitely be included in that list as well and while there's commonalities between each of these contexts, uh, the book kind of argues that the rise of racism and authoritarianism in the UK uh, is best understood through this lens of decline, imperial decline, sort of hence the, the title of the book. We'll definitely dive into the detail throughout the conversation, but could someone say a little bit more about this central thesis of declining state power uh, in the UK? I don't think it's a decline in state power. It's a decline in Britain's global status and power that leads to some odd kind of contortions in how state power displays itself and operates. So you know, clearly we're talking about a phase in which, and we can see now because you know, it feels like every time we're writing something, then the state would outdo us in terms of running ahead in terms of new forms of violence and neglect. And we're, this last week has been an absolute kind of example of that. But that in this kind of contortioned attempt to be still a great imperial power and yet not, these new forms of exclusionary violence 
we're all manifesting. So we're trying to understand that, that what happens as this kind of violent monster is dying and actually more people perhaps or different people get wounded in that process as it flaps around and, you know, the last legs and arms wriggle around. But it's not at all and shouldn't be understood as us saying, oh, there's a decline in state power because nearly every page of the book is pointing to the ways in which either by inaction or action, the state hurts people. But we're trying to look at why a particular moment of decline in terms of Britain's um, reach status, economic power, political influence, why that leads to this particular formation of buffoonery, neglect and violence all at once. Mm, yeah, no, thanks, Gargi. That's uh, absolutely right. I do. <laughs> Declining state power is not really appropriate, is it? Um, yeah, so you introduce early on in the book this this idea that you've touched on there of the neglectful and or punitive state. So could you give us some examples of how the state's actions are fitting into this sort of duality? I suppose part of the thing that we were thinking about is where are we now, sort of eight or nine years after the beginning of austerity proper? And we'd all thought about the neglectful state, partly in terms of the decimation of the welfare state in terms of things like benefit sanctions and generally in terms of widening inequality. But that that kind of system of decimation of the welfare state is not only an absence, it's also defined by a particular kind of punitiveness and punishment. Sanctions is the obvious example. And for racialized people and for people who experience heavy and over-policing or who experience immigration control, the ways in which the state is punitive have long been true, but perhaps have got even more severe in recent years with the kind of confluence of authoritarian counter-terrorism strategy affecting more and more people with things like prevent, with immigration control and the hostile environment, um, and with heavy policing around issues of so-called gangs and uh, knife crime, particularly after the 2011 riots and in response to the what's been called the knife crime epidemic, which we were, of course, commenting on throughout because that was a big deal in the front of the papers as we were meeting and hanging out and trying to make sense of. So I think that there's some of the things that we try and not only describe in the book, but to connect to one another and to think about in relation to one another, the, the kind of both abandoning and punitive welfare state, and then the spectacle of violence against those racialized, whether via immigration control, policing, or counter-terror, and to think about what all that says about both Britain's place in the world now and its nationalist convulsions, and what it also says about how racism is functioning. So I think just to kind of continue what Luke was saying, I think one of the things we were trying to get at is how these overlapping racialized moral panics serve as a kind of reassuring, even if disturbing, theatre that tries to offer some logic for the abandonment. So we're encouraged to watch the punishment of others and feel some reassurance that it is not us yet um, and that the state's job is no longer understood through a kind of um, a truce of some sort in which the welfare welfareist function of the state counterbalances a more punitive arm, but instead the punitive arm has become the only one that we can really grasp onto. And so I think one of the things that we were trying to understand is how these conditions don't just produce a kind of punitive, violent social formation, but also produce the desire for authoritarianism. So I think one of the conversations that we continually came back to was how that desire is uh, produced and maintained. 
I think I think yeah, just to stress a bit the point that essentially when the state has nothing to offer except for security, but actually it's really an impossible promise of security, but it is something that is very powerful as a means of reassuring people who are experiencing extreme levels of abandonment, neglect by the state, that actually the state is doing it ev- everything that it can to do what it can control, which is to keep people safe. And that's why we look in particular at the illegal immigrant or, or the immigrant, the, the gangster, the terrorist, and and look closely at how, you know, the specter of the foreign criminal, the gang, the illegal migrant comes to come to kind of license the kinds of authoritarian trends that we're seeing. And of course, we saw this um, over the summer with with the way in which migrants crossing the channel were, uh, that the response from the state was, you know, in the form of promising military intervention and appointing former military officers to um, home office positions. But I think we also see this at the micro level too. And just anecdotally, um, you know, I live in a an ex-council flat in a council block and there are so many things that are wrong with the council block that people suffer in, in the context of abandonment in this building. Things like drainage, things like plumbing, all sorts of things that affect people's daily quality of life and make life very difficult. But whenever the door, the locked door um, is insecure in the building, that's when immediately the council will send somebody to secure the door so that, you know, that we are locked inside. And I was thinking about what is an impossible promise of security in a broader sense, because, of course, understandings of what safety and security mean for us all are not what the state presents to us as what is security and what it can deliver in terms of security, which is security from these racialized figures that are presented as as threats and the reason why people are suffering abandonment and um, deprivation and dispossession. But what they can do is sometimes is is make sure that a door you know, to a building is locked, therefore giving people the sense that the state is doing the minimum, which is to provide security. So I just wanted to give that anecdotal kind of daily struggle that that I that I kind of watch play out in this in this building. Thanks, Nadine. I mean, you just touched on there the kind of um, yeah racialized threats. And, and in the book, uh, you kind of talk about these kind of racialized folk devils, right, who've been conscripted to explain and resolve Britain's crises. So could you give some examples of some of the kinds of racialized folk devils that abound and how they're constructed and what kinds of state practices they help to legitimate? So one of the um, kind of figures, one of the folk devils that came up in multiple contexts was the idea of the gang. So of course we've seen this in the context of knife crime where black youth, predominantly men, are uh, seen through the prism of the gang, seen as always a kind of threatening street-based presence organised through this idea of gangs organised along the lines of postcodes attached to organised crime and so on. And this in many ways is a kind of reboot of Uh, the mugger figure from the 1970s. But we also trace this idea of the gang to the grooming gang. So we wanted to see the ways in which this idea of organised sexual violence as a racial characteristic driven by cultural deficit or cultural excess connected in some way through that shared terminology, but also through a shared set of images and poetics to this idea of the gang organised around knife crime and other kinds of youth violence. I think those sort of two racialized figures 
were complemented by or joined by uh, the figure of the illegal immigrant. And so we wanted to look at how those all work together to justify or provide the logic for particular forms of racialized violence that involve the patrolling of borders um, and the hostile environment, but also counter-terrorism and the prevent policy. And to think about these together as enacting something a kind of criminalisation that seeks to suggest that crime can be predicted uh, and intercepted through these kinds of markers of how people dress or comport themselves or where they hang out or what kind of work they do. And so we try to kind of map these not as separate phenomena, but as things that feed into each other and rely on each other uh, to produce a kind of way of apprehending the world that is paranoid, atomized, suspicious, defensive, and kind of obsessed with keeping out dangerous others. As Sita said, we were focusing on kind of various situations of the gang, uh, particularly black youth, heavily policed and over-criminalised black youth, Muslims defined as kind of proto-terrorists or as groomers and illegal immigrants. And I think all three of them, in terms of the state practices that they then make possible they all kind of tell the spectator that we've lost control that we don't really know who we are as a nation anymore because the streets are filled with you know muslim terrorists and sexual abusers and gang members of various stripes and migrants illegal immigrants stealing services and etc and i think all of that the spectacle of, of these things kind of bouncing off one another then makes strong state executive power seem necessary. Um, So in this slide away from even the kind of, for what they're worth, liberal protections, due process rights, separation of powers, things that as demands for people on the left would seem quite tame some time ago, now feel both necessary and, and kind of radical because these figures, these cultural figures have done so much to make uh, the extension of of executive power seem necessary and any claims to any demands for due process sort of naive and somehow inappropriate. So we did talk a bit about that. And that was one of the first things we talked about and trying to think about what unites these racialized figures is the way that they then make possible forms of kind of pre-crime criminalization of sympathies, criminalization of associations for gang members or terrorists, criminalization of the music you make, the YouTube videos, the social media posts. Um, So that was important. I think we had a kind of kind of culturally rich account of what is generally called you know the kind of authoritarianism or the extension of executive power Um, and I think also by by thinking of those figures together we were also implicitly saying if we're going to challenge this system um, if we're going to get out of this we need to see our struggles as connected and so you know the the differently racialized migrant the Muslim and the kind of gang member are all being uh, subject to some similar forms, but not identical forms of state power, using some similar but not identical kinds of arguments about racialized threats, and that we need to build constituencies that can resist this by ref- by seeing those connections rather than allowing us ourselves to work in isolation against these encroachments against our rights and freedoms. Yeah, definitely. It's, qu- it's quite interesting. Um... I guess in the book, it's then sort of juxtaposed with the story of, you know, the Windrush generation, which is kind of presented as this, the good immigrant, right? Um, 
where you you saw particularly sort of during the Windrush scandal a couple of years ago, all sections of the press, you know, left and right, including like the Daily Mail, particularly odious members of the Tory party, you know, all rallying around the cause of these kind of good immigrants who were, you know, being threatened with deportation or denied healthcare on the NHS. Even though you could say that this is kind of the intended outcome of policies that those newspapers and political figures championed and instituted. So, yeah, is the is this kind of good immigrant being juxtaposed against these other kinds of people that you've mentioned? And how did it manage to become a scandal? What purpose does it serve to sort of rally around one particular group of immigrants, if you see what I mean? Yeah, as as you say, the kind of narratives that played out with the Windrush scandal were definitely a kind of attempt to fold in the Windrush generation into this idea of a misconstruction of history, essentially a kind of erasure of the imperial colonial context in which the Windrush generation arrived, but also a, a contemporary kind of attempt to say, well, the Windrush generation are part of this kind of national we. Um, and I think if we think of the, the timing of the of the Windrush um, scandal, it was a moment of national crisis in in defining what Britain was because the the referendum on the withdrawal from the European Union was happening at the same time there was a reification of Britishness of the British we and it was very high stakes for those who were going to be included in that we and those who were not and I think that good immigrant bad immigrant narrative helped to have the effect of bringing the Windrush generation into the fold of we in terms of the narrative although of course the material and indeed fatal exclusion of, of many of them, in particular, those who um, were found to have been defined outside of the we, um, for instance, because they were so-called foreign criminals, the material consequences for them were in some instances fatal. But I think that the effect of the inclusion of a certain group of racialized migrants as part of the national we was to allow a narrative that presented the Windrush scandal as being an aberration rather than the norm of racialized state violence. And that was a, a clear misconstrual of the reality of the situation that I think the book demonstrates by bringing in some of those other figures, those other racialized figures that we see being constructed in the narratives that the state pushes in order to elevate itself to the position of, of having the power to protect people from these constructed threats, the figures that Sita and Luke were speaking of earlier. Thanks, Nadine. I think, Gargi, you're up next. I guess I just don't want to let it, because I've been thinking quite a lot about the, what was our project. And because it was um, such a confusing moment, and in some ways has become less confusing, I think, as we've got we got towards publication and the end of the book things you know the battle lines seemed more clear but when we started writing i think a lot of it was much more messy that our project is trying to understand what the state thinks it's doing that doesn't mean that what the state thinks it's doing absolutely works or that there are no elisions within that and it's important to remember that Nadine and other people have already said this, it is not at all the case that the Windrush generation was celebrated for a long time, that what made that moment of a different articulation for that generation of only Caribbean migrants, so even other people who came in that generation were not really included, was about a whole conjunction of different forces. It made a difference that CARICOM came and said, what do you think you're up to? 
you know, it made a difference that the referendum was coming. It made a difference that there was an ability to organise in the community. It doesn't mean that other people didn't organise, but there's something unexpected in how the Windrush generation then emerged as a particular kind of political actor. And again, as Nadine has said, that supposed celebration made no difference to the actual material outcome. Even now, even the good migrants of the Windrush generation have not received their compensation. Even the few who've received compensation, it's pitifully tiny amounts of compensation. But there's something symbolic about pretending that you could be a good migrant within the British story in that particular moment. It's more picking up on that. I mean, what's going on with that? And and I think that's partly part of this flailing about, that a Britain which is both saying, hmm, we're not so powerful now, but we're kind of multicultural, but we're kind of nationalist, but we don't like foreigners, but we don't hate all foreigners. So it's a kind of re-navigation even of state power and state rhetoric, which kind of blips out in these different oddnesses. And also, I think, as Luke said, it's really important to understand that a lot of our interest is about saying, Okay, maybe we're not all the same, but there is something lost when we don't understand the ways in which different elements of racist state formation operate against each other and in concert. That these are not isolated incidents, that they work in concert to create a a racialized political space that positions us all. And that, I I hope, I think we all hope, opens a different kind of political possibility. Because even that has not been said for some time. Again, feels like that's a bit late. Now it's being said every day because of what's going on. But it's important for us to say that to each other. That I don't have to be like you to understand that we frame the violence in our lives through a similar lens, through a shared understanding of what state power and elite power is. And even if I'm positioned differently in that landscape, understanding how those dominant powers operate on me and mine helps me have solidarity with you and yours. I just wanted to add to that that a friend of mine, Hina, posted on Instagram saying that the book was about the state of race in the UK today, helping to explain why all our lives are shit. And I thought that was really helpful in summarising why, though race is our primary analytic and we're interested in how racism operates, the aim is to show how that affects everyone and not just racialised people, as I think Argy was saying. So I guess one thing that Gargi just touched on there uh, a little bit was nationalism. And there's like a section in the book about this, how there is this stubborn allure of nationalism in British political culture that cuts kind of across the political spectrum and arguably infects the left as much as it does the right. Um, And we see this kind of manifested in calls for progressive patriotism and so on. So um, I was wondering if someone could say a bit more about what characterises or, or undergirds British nationalism and why calls for like a left nationalism or progressive patriotism are sort of fundamentally misguided? I suppose I take from one of our friends, Valu, uh, that nationalism is not one thing and that British nationalism, you know, to dis- describe it, part of its effectiveness is that it can draw on so many registers traditional conservative, neoliberal, kind of a European muscular liberalism thing and then a kind of left nationalism, which is the thing that was frustrating us, I suppose. It's worth reiterating that we were writing this over a couple of years. You know, we'd accepted the fact that Brexit had been voted for in some way. So it wasn't immediately after the referendum. We didn't meet just in the wake of the referendum, but we met a year or so after for a couple of years. So there was a lot going on around 
punditry around Britain, around what could be made of the UK's departure from the European Union, around the Corbyn moment. And so we became frustrated with, you know, it might have been a comment piece from Paul Mason, and it, it might have been from across the pond, Angela Nagel writing about the left-wing argument for borders, but there were several kind of points at which people supposedly on the left were making quite nativist arguments. And so that was when we were trying to think about how that works, what the allure of that is. And there are lots of people who've written about left nationalism before us, but we were kind of particularly thinking about the dangers as you know, the Labour Party in its progressive moment under Corbyn was still making, you know, certain concessions around more bobbies on the beat, more police officers, more border guards, uh, saying quite equivocal things about migration policy. Again, folding the Windrush into a kind of multicultural nation, but still saying that they would bear down, that the Labour Party would bear down on illegal immigrants. So all of this was going on. And I think that's kind of the important context for us, like many others, like many anti-racists that have inspired us having a go at trying to understand how left nationalism, left nativism worked in that particular moment. I mean, it's not quite the same point. I mean, there's a different conversation we're having about nationalisms and that um, often when we speak about nationalism, we talk as if it's only the flag waving and the kind of um, overt jingoism. And clearly there's plenty of that. You know, it's, it's interesting that having had one of the only things that we know or we can tell about Starmer is that he knows he's got to have his flag with him. So, you know, it's not like we're above, you know, we collectively in this space are above that kind of most lowest common denominator kind of nationalism. But I think we're also interested in how nationalism is also a way, even when it's not overtly jingoistic, about limiting political imagination, about limiting the idea of what possibility and safety and a livable life is. So that even if people are not out there kind of waving their flags thinking, is that really Prince Philip or is it some other corpse that they're driving around? Is there a spectacle there? People don't have to believe it. But in terms of this moment of a kind of crumbling power, unleashing different forms of state violence, the idea that the nation is the only possible political receptacle. And if you don't go here, you don't go anywhere. Don't go here, you're, you know, you're in the sea. And that the only power within this national space is this crumbling, unpredictable, apparently irrational power. That, I think, raises a different kind of set of concerns and questions about you know, how we are with each other. So some of the things we talk about, about the longing for authority. And um, you know, we've kind of picked this up from things that people say and popular culture. So we're not testing it. We're not going out and doing field work to say these things that are expressed is that really how 53% of the British public feel? It's not that kind of project, but it's trying to read the texture of what a, a national conversation is like. And within that national conversation, it seems pretty clear that even if lots of people are not kind of invested actively all the time in some Britishness, there's a sense of, of loss, of insecurity, of a failing of safety, of a, a loss of hope and a kind of resentment and folding in which then can be re-articulated as something about nation. So that when someone comes and says, I'm a hard man and I can come and save you, and actually it's in the name of nation, that can have a hearing. Or when people say, you've lost something, don't you think what you've lost feels a bit like a loss of national status or racialized status? That can be articulated. It, it can have a kind of hook within 
the st national story of this space. And I just think that's, um, unless we say to each other that nationalism might come softly, grudgingly, as a last-ditch default and a time of possible non-survival for many, we're not kind of quite getting it. Because it's quite, you know, isn't that hard to challenge the flags and bunting kind of nationalism? Now, we're quite practised at doing that. But the nationalism of the last-ditch survivor, which even the last almost survivor barely believes but has nothing else to hold on to, that feels like a slightly different kind of challenge to me. We didn't really all agree about nationalism, but I still think that one of the things about the book is that it doesn't give up that question too quickly, that that's still within there. I don't know if other people in the room think that fits what they think. I think that I think that's right. And I, I think that along with what Gargi was saying, the other thing that the book contributes in terms of trying to critique this idea of progressive nationalism is the importance we place on history, both the problem of amnesia around questions like the one we just discussed in relation to Windrush and the reality of the unwelcoming attitude, the attempts the authorities made to prevent racialized colonial and Commonwealth citizens from arriving in Britain, but also it points out the amnesia of those who argue for a progressive kind of nationalism by kind of showing through the giving of some examples and a discussion of Powellism, also this a reminder that actually it's always been through the nation that racism, xenophobia has been articulated and justified and defended which I think is, it's an obvious point, but I think it's also one that is um, forgotten when a claim to the possibility or potential for a progressive form of nationalism, which has never existed and is oxymoronic in the clearest sense um, when that argument is made. I wonder if it's also useful just to bring in that our section, our chapter on the limits of representation is also in our larger section on nationalism. And I think the reason for that and the reason it's important is that one of the things we wanted to understand is the way that in some quite subtle and buried ways, the politics of the nation and nationalism also inform certain anti-racisms, probably of a more liberal or identitarian stripe than we would ascribed to, but that the ways in which uh, a kind of anti-imperialist, internationalist anti-racism has been in many ways lost to an anti-racism much more concerned with representation, with institutional politics, um, and even putatively anti-imperialist demands such as to decolonise the university uh, can sometimes result in quite liberal politics in practice. And so I think we wanted to think about how nationalism acts as the implicit container, the implicit limit on a set of anti-racist demands, even if they don't explicitly uh, think of themselves within the form of the nation, that the nation is nonetheless there acting as that limit. Um, and so we wanted to also use the opportunity of critiquing progressive nationalism to also critique this kind of representational anti-racism mm, yeah yeah definitely i suppose it's as you say in the book it can leave all the structures intact if you just change who is in those positions of public visibility and power so yeah we've we've talked about how uh, those who sort of fall outside of or are perceived to fall outside of prevailing sort of social norms of society are viewed as threats threats to the nation how does uh, gender and sexuality play into this uh, i guess both historically but also in the the present moment so one of the ways that we thought through this um, 
was to think about the way that state power represents itself through particular masculine figures. So we um, took the figure of the buffoon, which I think so far we've only seen inhabited by men, although perhaps perhaps there will be a, a woman who takes on this buffoonish role. I'm not totally convinced of that, but it remains to be seen. And we wanted to think about the buffoon as uh, one iteration of the state patriarch. So invariably there is this thread in nationalism that sees the nation through the analogy of the family. And we wanted to think about how much that's been transformed um, since the significant attacks on the welfare state and the kind of shrinking of the state in its welfareist incarnation. Um, and so we wanted to think about the state patriarch as a increasingly punitive figure, a kind of uh, a patriarchal figure that expels rather than includes, but also as one that is distractingly foolish and ridiculous um, and how that performance of a kind of incompetent, flailing, ridiculous masculinity acts as a means of making the political sphere itself ridiculous and in its ridiculousness more difficult to um, to grasp and to fight. And so that I think one of the ways that we tried to think about gender and sexuality was was in, in these terms, in terms of how the state operates, not only in how its effects are gendered, which I'm sure someone else can speak to, but also in how it, it, its presentation of itself and its modes of governance are also in some way gendered. Part of what we're interested in is how these very established ways of narrating national safety as a kind of familial concern, which, as Sita said, can't be maintained in quite the same way because both families and the states and the state have changed, kind of overlap with the ways in which histories and presence of militarism work for this country and the ways in which all of the concoction of more and more racialized others, all of whom need violent containment, bleeds in and out of Britain's sense of itself on a global stage of culture of militarism that is supposed to be brought home as the final saving grace. Everything we say about the last ditch promise of a state in disarray is that the army will be brought in. And we've seen that even more since we finished writing the book that all of this COVID period has been about, well, there is one legitimate and effective state authority and it's the military wing of the state. That also flows in and out of how a kind of gendered and sexualized space works. And um, you know, we try to think about how the whole noise around the so-called grooming gang works in that way. And again, this week, of all weeks, that's an important set of questions to revisit. The idea that there are vulnerable women who belong to the nation, who are being defiled, violated, hurt, killed. By alien others, and that the way that the state cannot not act is this hailing of this militaristic jackboot. This is why you must allow the state to operate untrammeled, even though it can't do anything for you, because look at what happens when this last ditch ordering doesn't take place. Now, of course, what we're seeing this week is a kind of pushing to the limit of that claim. On, on the one hand, an absolute confirmation that some people are, are never safe, not safe at home, not safe in the street. That's that's the lesson of misogynistic violence. But equally, that those 
sometimes shouted, sometimes whispered claims on the part of the state that, okay, well, you might hate us, we might be corrupt, we might be ineffective, we might be murderous, but who will look after the children? But that has been revealed to, I think, a broader section of society as just a hypocritical and cynical claim, a manipulation of our quite properly felt insecurity. So that all of that politics is absolutely gendered and sexualized. None of it works without the trigger points of ideas about gendering and sexualization. And although we didn't yet know what would be happening in, in March 2021, what is happening in Britain in March 2021 absolutely follows on from the ways in which we talk about who is made an enemy, how state power is then tries to reconsolidate itself in the face of these failures of protection and what that then means for our connections to each other. And that, again, is a way that we need to think about what, what it would mean to articulate solidarity across difference. Yeah, I just want to pick up on and underline some of, some of that in that when we were writing about the relationship between state racism and gender and sexuality, we weren't primarily focusing on, I see to mention, the kind of gendered impacts of state violence, although that's there in the book a little bit. We, were, we weren't either talking primarily about intersectionality, as in you know the experiences of racialized women, but we're trying to kind of do something else. And I think intersectionality can be a very useful tool but it can also be a little bit flat and a little bit 2D. I mean, that's there in the description of something intersecting for explaining how race and gender and sexuality are co-constitutive or co-constitute one another. So those categories or those formations is not necessarily intersecting, but working through one another. And I think that's why we found the kind of metaphor around the state patriarch, around the buffoon, around various situations of the state patriarch useful and it's also why we've paused and reflected on what was a difficult discussion around uh, the figure of the Pakistani grooming gang which which we have a chapter on and I think we found that was a useful way of building I guess on some of the work on homo nationalism on the ways in which an apparently liberal um, LGBT friendly politics is used to justify imperial so-called humanitarian wars abroad but trying to transpose that set of theories to our focus which is on contemporary cultures of British racism and I think what we were interested in is how the grooming gang became a national sign through which authoritarianism could be extended which relied precisely on a set of gendered and sexualized tropes and fears and hierarchies and discourses and we should note when thinking about how that gendered and sexualized set of discourses makes new forms of authoritarianism possible that actually the first case of people having their citizenship deprived and stripped in a case that was not considered a terrorist case or a national security case was the case of the Rochdale perpetrators of sexual violence um, who were deprived of citizenship so that they could be deported afterwards Um, and so there was a kind of extension of that power or an enforcement of the law that was already on the books to include those convicted of serious crimes um, on the basis of that, and we were also thinking about the way that the grooming gang issue worked as a lightning rod for the far right and led to kind of far right mobilizations in some of those towns up north. So it was a difficult, uh, it's always a difficult topic, but one that we felt was really important and really the, the way in which thinking about gender and sexuality, that's the direction that we ended up taking for a lot of our conversations, I think. 
That was Gargi Bhattacharya, Sita Balani, Dean Elanani, and Luke De Naronha on Radicals in Conversation. If you want to keep listening, then just head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press, where patrons have access to the unabridged version of this podcast. We'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.